Come with me into Genesis chapter 12 and 14. And let's read about some of the places that Abraham referred to as Abram here in Genesis. Let's read about the places that Abraham went. Starting in Genesis 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And Lot who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. So great, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. For their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. Skipping to Genesis 14. So the enemy took all possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eskel and of Aner. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Bless the reading of God's word. Amen. Would you go to the Lord in prayer with me at this time? Father, We pray that the gospel might go out in great power and transformation. We pray that you may bless our sister congregations uh, throughout this area as they proclaim your truth. Prepare ears and hearts everywhere to hear the gospel clearly and to respond distinctly. Father, we pray for our countless missionaries across this nation our continent, or even around the world. We pray that you would raise up resources to supply their needs, that you would give protection and wisdom as they navigate all the challenges before them. We are especially mindful of those who have close connections with our church family, the D family in Europe, the S family in Central Asia, the F family as they are preparing even now to go. We pray for the Greece team that's preparing 
to, to go uh, next month and serve you from this church. And we pray that uh, all resources and needs would be met and that uh, you would prepare each heart and mind uh, that is getting ready to serve you in this special way. And Lord, for those to whom we will minister, we pray that even now you're preparing them as well again so that the gospel may go forth with great power and clarity. Lord, we pray that you will help us be good Christ-honoring Christ entering uh, Christ neighbors as we think about the things in front of us, Lord, particularly the uh, community cookout. We're an opportunity to build bridges and develop relationships with those that live near us, all around us, people that we encounter each and every day. Give us fruit through the endeavor, a fruit that will remain. And now, Father, we pray that this morning you'll give us ears to hear, hearts that are fertile ground upon which your seed may be planted. We pray that, Lord, you would use us to continue to advance your kingdom for your glory, for your honor. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, Tommy read uh, a cross-section of text this morning. We're going to be looking at the last half of chapter 12 all the way through chapter 14, I hope. And uh, we're thinking about this idea of how God is always refining His people. You know, He doesn't save us, call us out to follow Him, and then just leave us as we are. If you are one of those people that has put your faith and trust in Christ, and you're proud of the fact that uh, you're just like you were when you were saved, then there's a problem. There's a disconnect in your understanding of the gospel. God is always refining and reshaping us according to His purposes and plans. And we have to work uh, and try hard, I think, to see things as God sees them around us. We have to try hard to see how God is working in our lives through the good and the bad. Romans 8.28 says God uses all things for what? For the good of those to whom He has called. That's something that I have to work out uh, in a particular way in my life. If not, I listen to the whispers of all the things around me, to the culture, uh, to people who are not walking with the Lord, expectations that they may have, and find myself being led astray very easily, beginning to think the wrong things, beginning to think entitled thoughts that I don't deserve this or I deserve something better than what I'm being given. But at the heart of everything, God is always working through all of these things. He's using peaks and valleys to grow us and to glorify Himself. These brief encounters here in Abram's life are very interesting to me. They are sandwiched by two iterations of God's covenant, God's promise with Abram. Chapter 12, as Nathan shared with us last week, God called Abram out from a land of idolatry and uh, called him to go and take him at his word and go to a strange place, a place he had not been before, to follow him. And he said, I'm going to bless you. 
He'll reiterate this again in chapter 15 in a more dramatic fashion, driving home the point. So what's going on in the meantime between these two iterations of this covenant? God is showing Abram that nothing is going to stop or thwart his purpose, his plan. It doesn't hinge or depend upon Abram, but upon the God who has made this covenant to bring it all to pass. And he's establishing that in his heart. Abram was indeed a man that God considered to be one he could use, a man that God called and pronounced as righteous, one that he would use. But he's going to use him for his glory, and left to his own devices, Abram's just the same as you or I. He's going to fail, he's going to falter, he's going to stumble in his fallen humanity. So these vignettes show us how God grows his people in a variety of ways. He uses all things to make us into what he wants us to be in order to glorify and honor himself. I want to show you four ways this morning that God is refining and growing Abram and also us for his glory. First of all, we see here in the last half of chapter 12, that God refines his people by exposing weakness. God refines and grows us by exposing our weaknesses. As last week, Nathan told you about Abram's calling. He instructed him to leave and to go. And to his credit, the scripture says Abram did what? He argued with God. He put up a fight against God. No, it plainly says he went. He just went. He took God at his word and he went as the Lord had told him. That's to be commended, right? Abram is right where God wants him to be. And what happens next? Well, our text tells us now there was what? Prosperity, blessing, the fulfillment of the promise. Everything's wonderful, right? Now there was a famine in the land. A famine. What's up with that? Go, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will give you a great name. And what happens? He goes and he finds a great, a severe famine. Now, most of us have never experienced a famine. Maybe someone has missed a meal, but not many of us have ever been involved in a famine directly, have we? We may have seen people from afar. We may have heard accounts of people going through famines, but we have not faced one. How would you feel if you were in Abram's shoes? You just did what God asked you to do. You've been obedient. You've been faithful. You've been trusting. And you get to where God brings you only to experience a famine. I mean, people are starving. There's no food available. The resources, people are scrounging and fighting and clawing, trying to get, grab hold of resources just to survive. How would you feel? I think these are some of the questions I would be asking, some of the thoughts I'd be having. How could this happen if I'm following God's will? Did I miss something? Did I misinterpret what God was saying to me? Has God changed his plans, his promise? Is God that fickle? 
God is supposed to be all-knowing, right? So did he not see the famine coming? Has God abandoned me? Is he some kind of sadist? Does he just like to torment and torture? God cannot be trusted. A God who would do this simply can't be trusted. Sarah, pack up the cart. We're going home. We've had enough, right? It's unlikely that any of us as I said, have experienced a famine, but we have faced great disappointments and even deep loss in this world. And very often, if not a lot of times, we have been experienced these things while we've been following God with all faithfulness and trust. Yet God doesn't shelter us from these disappointments and loss, whether it's the loss of a job or wrecking a career or losing a loved one, suffering the wounds of a friend or watching money disappear, resources, security. Maybe you were following God, you were loving God, serving God, and you found this famine in your life. And if God's all-powerful, why doesn't he prevent them? Well, God was refining Abram is what we see. Where did Abram really have his confidence resting? Maybe his confidence was in the promise of greatness that God had put before him. No problems. Honor, reputation, great name. Those are things to be desired. Maybe Abram was trusting in the world's definition of these things. God often reshapes our trust by exposing the real object of our trust and faith. He commands our attention ultimately so that he might deepen and might enlarge our faith. I remind you of when Israel came out of Egypt sometime later after this event. And as God performed those ten plagues to break the will of the Egyptians... And here you are as Israel, God leads you out into the wilderness, and he doesn't lead you north where there's lots of open country. He leads you south where it's rocky and cavernous, and there's a sea there that becomes a wall, an obstacle. And he leads them right to the edge of the sea, knowing that Pharaoh's army is close on their heels, having rethought their position and the loss of all these assets and deciding that maybe they should bring them back. So they were between literally the rock and the hard place. What were they to do? What was God thinking? Well, Exodus 14, 13 and 14 says this, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see what? The salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Ah, if Abram had only had that counsel, right? If Abram had had that counsel, he was a man of faith, but the famine was too much for him. So Abram did what? He packed up and went to Egypt to sojourn. Why? Because the famine was so severe. He couldn't see a way through it. 
He couldn't see through the eyes of God. He couldn't see through the lens that God provides. A man of faith, yes, but he's struggling. He's struggling. Now, Egypt is a real nation, but Egypt is also a metaphor for the world, for the flesh. Israel constantly had this struggle with Egypt, putting confidence in Egypt. Isaiah chapter 31, listen to this. God warns them. He says, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together." We all are tempted to trust in many things other than God. Each one of us has our, our pet substitute for God. It may be the nation, the government. It may be politicians or leaders. It may be our employer. It may be the education that we have. It may be our bank account. Abram chose to trust Egypt rather than God. He had left his homeland. Wasn't that enough? Didn't that prove to God that Abram was committed? It was until it wasn't. Until Abram faced a great opposition, a severe famine. Rather than wait on God, we don't see him consulting God. We don't see him praying to God. We don't see him calling out to God. We see him packing up and going to Egypt, finding the easy way out, the human way out he may have found food but he ended up in a severe mess now God does something interesting here rather than he's been speaking directly to Abram he's been he's called Abram out he's brought him to the place where he is now but he doesn't he doesn't go to Abram directly now Abram's gone off the reservation right Abram is in Egypt God doesn't come to him directly and say, boy, you messed up. You need to get your act together. We need to get back on track. It's as if he ignores Abram and he goes to Pharaoh. He goes to Pharaoh. He afflicts Pharaoh and his house instead. Why? This kind of puzzles me. But I believe that had Abram corrected his path or had he even thought about it, then he would have been tempted to take what? The credit unto himself, right? He, he would have believed his press clippings at that point. You know, gee, I, I did the right thing here. I may have messed up, but I got myself straightened out, and God sure is lucky to have me. God confronted the powerful player in the drama, Pharaoh in Egypt, and it further exposed Abram's weakness and failure. As Pharaoh was the one that confronted Abram in his disobedience, embarrassed him even spiritually. <laughs> what, what are you doing to me? You're trying to get me killed? You're trying to get my kingdom destroyed because you're being disobedient to your God? 
This further exalted God's greatness and power. He's bigger and better than man's best. Now, there's an important message here for the Israelites as Moses is writing this text because they, at the time of the writing of this, are actually in the wilderness, right? And they had this incredible track record of disobeying God, of being frail and futile in their faith. They claimed to be God's people. They claimed to believe and trust in God, but they were continually faltering. The golden calf. Remember that episode? But this golden calf rebellion, God is saying to them even now, does not subvert God's plans for his people. And it didn't, did it? Israel's grumbling and murmuring in the wilderness, always complaining about what God was doing and how he was going about doing it. Why didn't he make things easier? Why do we have to wait and harvest manna from the sky each and every morning? Couldn't he just give us a supply so we didn't have to go out and do that every morning? Why can't we have meat? Why has it always got to be manna? Always manna. Murmur, grumble, It's never good enough. It's never right, is it? God says, is this going to subvert what I do? It would be if I were depending upon you. But he says, this is about me and my promise. And I will do this in spite of your grumbling and your murmuring. God's making clear that this covenant rides completely on him. Abram stumbled. He failed. Israel will falter and fail. You and I will falter and fail. But God does not ever. We think we see him stumble. We think we see him abandoned. We think we see him not living up to the letter of his promise, but it's all an illusion to us. What about the disbelieving spies, the 10 spies who didn't, who didn't believe? Could they unravel God's plan? Well, 40 years later, God says, Now we're going into the promised land. It didn't hurt anyone but themselves, did it? God glorifies himself by exposing our weaknesses and growing us through them. And he's going to grow Abram through this. Doesn't perfect him, but he is perfecting him. The second thing I want you to see this morning is that God refines his people by tempering their strengths. He doesn't just expose our weaknesses. He also tempers, modifies our strengths, the things that we recognize that are really advantages for us. Even in his failure, God provided abundantly for Abram. Notice, he leaves Egypt and he goes right back to where God brought him to begin with, right? He's very rich in livestock, in silver, in gold. He left Egypt, he left the Negev, and he went back to Bethel, to the house of God. Scripture says he returned to the place he first arrived during following God's promise. God should be pleased, right? God should be honored. Abraham's back on track. Everything should be fine now. What happens? This is a place of worship. Abram called on the Lord. He's blessed. He's obedient. He's prosperous. He's focused on the Lord. And he also has a ready-made heir already in the line, in Lot. So what does God do? 
God says, well, you know, Abram, your faith was good, but a little bit weak. I needed to expose that. I need to strengthen that. But he says, you know, now you've got too much. I need to temper that because you can become too complacent. You think you've got everything already worked out. And so what does he do? The land could not support both Abram and Lot. There was strife between their herdsmen. There were serious enemies dwelling all around them. And immature Abram might have tried to engineer a way around this so they could coexist. But a maturing Abram trusted God and told Lot, separate from me. Go away. You pick the way you want to go. You pick the place you want to go. You pick where you want to settle. I'll take the other. We have no explanation of how he made this decision, but we know it's the right one. How do we know it's the right one? I think there's abundant evidence here in this text to support that Abram makes the right decision here, that it's a God-directed decision. First of all, it was uncomfortable for him. He was giving up Lot, that built-in heir. We're going to see him do the same thing with Ishmael later, right? When he can't see how this is going to work out according to God's plan, he says, well, you know, I've got an idea. Why don't we just use Ishmael? We already have him. Here he's saying, why don't we just use Lot? Lot's my trump card. Lot is my safety net in case God can't come through. After all, I am 75 years old. So God says, we're going to remove Lot. They were prospering as they were. It's hard to change when something's working, isn't it? Even if they could not coexist, maybe they should try to keep the corporation together. There's no talk of that. Just separate. Abraham surrendered. Abram gave Lot the choice. This suggests that Abram was confident in whom? He's confident in God. Lot does what we would expect him to do. He's a man with an eye to the world. He takes that which looks best, that which appears best. Well, if you're going to give me the choice, Abram, no deferring to the elder statesman here. I'll take the plush valley. Abram rests in that. What does God do? God gives validation. I will give to you all this. What? All this dusty, rocky ground in the other direction. These rolling hills of rocks. And he says what? I'm going to make your offspring like the dust that covers this ground. Now, if you've spent any time in Israel, you can appreciate what God is saying here. You know, the old joke is is that when God finished his creation, he got to the Middle East, and that's where he dumped all the rocks left over in his possession. Because it's just one rock on top of another rock. Dust on top of dust. And when God said, all this I'm going to give to you, And I'm going to make your descendants like the dust that covers all of this area. He's saying, I'm going to prosper you beyond anything you can imagine. So Abram settled. Where did he settle? He settled in Hebron, the beloved of God. And Lot went and settled in view of Sodom and Gomorrah. And ultimately ended up dwelling there. The lesson learned. Abram struggled when he was facing the famine, but he learned his lesson. He didn't struggle in the context of his prosperity. He held it loosely. He gave God control of this. He surrendered it. 
and he didn't resent or wallow in his past failure. He learned. He grew. We have to focus on not allowing failure and sin to hold us hostage. Nor should we depend upon our strengths or advantages as our hope. You see how God is shaping Abram? Removing weakness, exposing the weakness, making him aware of his weakness, and at the same time, helping him understand how dangerous the prosperity can be. Finding the tension. We depend upon God, aspire for His will and His ways. We live in a very affluent place. Not only our country, but particularly here in our own community. It's very easy for us to lose sight of God, to begin to trust in the things around us, the things that we have access to, the tangible things, the comfortable life, and maybe not be as apt to want to trust God. God exposes weaknesses, He tempers strengths, and God refines people also by stretching faith, by stretching their faith. We're getting to the really good stuff now. Chapter 14. What happens here? The world around Abram was full of brokenness, full of sin, full of hostility, full of aggression. Mesopotamian kings were notorious for banding together and invading one another and subjugating one another. Weaker kings would form alliances in order to protect themselves against these bigger and Mightier bullies that would come in and try to take what they had. We see five kings in the area of Jordan that served uh, Kedor Laomer for 12 years, the scripture says. 12 years, these five kings there in the Jordan Valley area were subjected to this king from the north and his band of three or four other kings. Twelve years they paid tribute, they paid taxes, they did, they paid extortion, basically for protection. And then the thirteenth year, they had a meeting and decided, you know what, we're tired of paying these tributes, we're tired of paying these taxes. We think they've probably forgotten who we are, they think they've already taken everything we've got, let's just don't pay it. And so in year 13, they didn't pay it. Year 14, Kedar Laomer came charging in with his troops, and they attacked, and they gave him such a whipping. The, the picture that's portrayed by historians in this, this reminds us of, of Sherman's march, making the wide swath to the coast as he came down. They came down with furor. They came down with anger. They came down demolishing everything in their path. They came to the Jordan Valley and they squashed these cities and they took their possessions and they took their people. One of the casualties of this exercise was Lot, Abram's nephew. Now, I think Abram probably would have stayed out of this had it not been for Lot being taken captive. But when he got word that they had taken his nephew and family then he was automatically thrust into the middle of this situation. These four kings were ruthless. They were powerful. This was a major challenge. What to do? A risky venture presented itself. Would they subvert God's promises and covenant? They'd thoroughly beaten everyone else. 
And Abram, to his credit, again, we're deprived of the details. What did God say to him? What did God direct him to do? How did Abram come to this conclusion that he had to simply do something? What we do see is we see Abram foreshadowing Christ, do we not? Satan came in, pillaged this creation, pillaged the temple of God, pillaged this beautiful creation that God had pronounced good, stole, took ownership, and God dispatched his son who condescended out of heaven and entered this world to gain back that which had been lost. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. John 3.17, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Abram acted in the same manner. It's as reasonable to assume that he got these instructions from God. It was a big task, but God gave grace and power and the victory. Where's God providing opportunities for your faith to be stretched? Is he challenging your comfort and your fears? Is there someone crossing your path who's not like you? They're different. Are you intimidated to engage in conversation or get better acquainted? Are you struggling with judging and condemning them because of their difference? Are you avoiding friendships to avoid getting hurt, getting wounded? Are you content to just observe from the sidelines the faith of others being acted out? You know, most coaches will tell you that there's two kinds of players on their team. They're the players that are content to sit on the bench and watch everybody else play when the going's tough. And then there's the guys that can't wait to get in the game. Which one are you? Are you content to watch everyone else play the game? Or are you anxious to get in and find God's purpose and plans working and operating in you? Are you self-aware enough to recognize God's given you opportunities? Are you available to obey as God leads? Are you willing to do an act of kindness for a neighbor with no strings attached, without any explanation, just because You want to express that you care. Are you willing to try and have a spiritual conversation with them? Are you willing to bring someone with you to our community cookout at the end of this month? Are you willing to volunteer to help with Crabapple Fest in early October? And engage our community as they descend upon Milton? Are you willing to invite someone to come to church with you? Are you willing to consider being part of a mission trip? Are you willing to volunteer and help with child care one Sunday a quarter? Look, I've heard all the excuses. I've been hearing them for years. People say, well, you know, my children are raised. I've done my part. I volunteered. You know, it's time for me to kind of move up into the bleachers. Hogwash. (laughs) When God's ready for you to move to the bleachers, he'll put you in a casket. Take you on to heaven because you have no earthly benefit anymore, right? And then there are those who are in the midst of raising their kids and they say, you don't understand, I'm with them all week, I need a break. Listen, you can take a quarter and take one Sunday a quarter and give some of your friends a break. And they'll do the same for you. 
We need all. We can't be, we can't be qualifying these things. We, we've got to be willing to say, Lord, use me. I'm available. You willing to volunteer to help teach children or youth for a quarter? Why does it need to be the same people all the time? Over and over and over. Maybe they need a break. They need to renew and revive. Well, finally, I want you to see that God refines his people by testing allegiance. By testing allegiance. After Abram's return, the king of Sodom Sodom went out and met him in the valley of Sheva. The king of Sodom. Now, is this the same king? Probably not. From reading this text in chapter 14, there's good reason to believe these kings got whipped and they perished. This may be a new king. And he shows up to meet Abram. Why? Well, to show gratitude, to give honor, and to offer spoils to the victor. This was important. There's a new sheriff in town. Abram is him. This guy, we want to hook our wagons to him, don't we? Look what he just did for us. This is a guy we want to get on his good side. I want you to focus on Abram because he's faced with an incredible temptation here. The Valley of Sheva, this this expression, there's a modern expression in Hebrew, to reach the Valley of Sheva means to reach a compromise, to come to a compromise, a place of compromise. The Hebrew makes it apparent that it is here in this valley that Abram was tempted. He's tempted to compromise the principles of his character, his integrity, and his faith. He's got to decide. You see, on one side, he's got the king of Sodom, who's coming with all kinds of flowery words of praise and honor and enhancing Abram's reputation and even promising him the spoils. Abram could become one of those ruthless kings at this point. We want to do that, Abram. We will make you our king. You're the man. Look what you just did. We'll start giving our tributes every year to you. This is what's facing him. Would Abram compromise? Would he abandon his trust in the Lord? Would he rationalize and try to have the best of all worlds and say, well, the Lord must have done this, so I'll take it. Then Melchizedek enters the story without warning, without previous introduction. There's no genealogy mentioning him. He is a mysterious figure. He presents a clear contrast to the king of Sodom who rules a wicked people. Melchizedek means my king is righteous or the king of righteousness. Some argue that he's the patriarch Shem without any biblical evidence, I might add. So that doesn't seem to bear any proof. Some think he was an angel, specially created being or even unfallen Adam or pre-incarnate Messiah. We don't know, but what we do know is what Scripture does tell us, that he is a foreshadowing of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 7, 
We read this, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth of part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem. That is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither Beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. Now that's what Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says. Now Salem or Jerusalem, I might add, at this particular time in history was a Canaanite city. This is where it really gets interesting. It's not the Jerusalem we know today or we think of today. It was a Canaanite city. So there's every reason to believe that Melchizedek is a Canaanite king. But he's a monotheist. He's not like the rest of them. Something has changed and made him different. He is king and priest. This is not unusual in the ancient Near East. But it never occurs in Israel's history. Until Christ In Abram's response, we hear a clear echo of Melchizedek's blessing. I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing. Not even a strap of a sandal. He will take nothing, no matter how small or insignificant it may seem. Abraham chooses Melchizedek and Yahweh, God, El Elyon. Passing this test of faith, this test of allegiance. He rejects the king of Sodom. He embraces the priest of God. He will not live off the Sodomites' goods. He will not be indebted to them for anything. He will not welcome their words of gratitude beyond anything. Hebrews 7 establishes that the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, is embodied and fulfilled in Christ himself. And it's done by drawing several parallels between the two. Melchizedek is a priestly king, as is Jesus. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, and his office is king of peace, which are two characteristics of Messiah and his reign. We find that in chapter 7, verse 2. Melchizedek is not of Aaron's line, and neither is Jesus. He came from Judah. No record of Melchizedek's birth or death is evident, symbolizing Jesus' eternal priesthood. He's clearly a foreshadowing of Christ. He's a historical personage pointing forward to the Redeemer who is to come. He's the shadow, and Jesus is the fulfillment. It's impossible, I think, to separate this 14th chapter of Genesis from the gospel. As I said earlier, Satan has plundered God's creation, ushering sin in, putting us all in bondage to sin. We're all hostages. Christ came like Abram pursued Lot and his captors and has delivered us from the devil's grip. Those who believe the gospel, repent of sin, and put their trust in Christ belong to him. And can never be lost again. He's coming again. Soon. 
coming again to gather all who belong to him and take us to the place that he's preparing. A new heaven, a new earth where we will feast in his presence forever and his glory will be displayed brilliantly and forever. How's he working and refining and growing you to this end? Exposing weaknesses? Listen, the sin is not in having weaknesses. The sin is ignoring your weaknesses, right? The sin is in refusing to grow, to be teachable, to be transformed by his work in us. We can be arrogant. We can complain too much. We can be intolerant. We can be impatient. We say we believe Romans 8, 28 for All things work together for good for those that love him and are called according to his purposes. But does our life clearly indicate that we believe it? Or are these just words, platitudes that we put on our wall or underline in our Bible? Trust in God at all times, in all things, with thanksgiving with generosity, with humility, embracing God's refining of our pride, our selfishness, our fears, that he might be glorified and honored. And we think about Abram, we put him on a pedestal, and he was a great follower of God, a great man, obedient. God said he's righteous. But Abram was just like us. He faltered, he stumbled, he made mistakes, he got himself in the way. But God uses all these things to shape the man and make the man into what he wants to use to make his name great. Not Abram's name, God's name. And he does the same thing in us and through us. And he does the same thing in his church. Not to make the church great, not to make our name great, but to make his name great, to reflect and display his glory in a community, in a world that desperately needs God. Father, we thank you and bless you for who you are. What a great and incredible account we have in the life of uh, those who have gone before us, people like Abram. Lord, we pray that you might speak into our lives and change our hearts and shape us Lord, showing us where we have weakness and we we need to especially rest and lean into your uh, strengths and your um, direction and leadership for us. And Lord, those areas where we tend to neglect you, we tend to push you aside and say, we don't need help here, I've got this, when in fact we do. Lord, where we need to have our faith stretched and deepened and Uh, reach a richer quality, Lord, where we learn to walk with you in the difficult and challenging things of life. And Lord, also where you test our allegiance. Who do we really love? Who are we really devoted to? Uh, Show us and help us not to be afraid of those examinations that we might be um, refined and, and made more pure to reflect your glory to all that we encounter, or that your gospel may advance. We thank you for what you're doing in this church and how you're using us and for 
the ways that you're shaping and teaching. And we pray that you continue. Show us, Lord, those opportunities where we can be available to your work in us and through us. For your name's sake, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.